welcome once again to Between Two Palms, a podcast about art, ideas, and making things. I'm Evelyn Lassery, co-owner of Two Palms in New York, where we're celebrating 25 years of collaboration with some of the world's top contemporary artists. In this episode of Between Two Palms, we'll hear from Dan Nadell and Carol Dunham, two friends contemplating what they call the richest path of exploration. Carol Dunham has been a prolific and ingenious printmaker for nearly 40 years. Considered one of the most important artists of his generation, he has been the subject of numerous gallery and museum shows worldwide. Dan Nadell is a Brooklyn-based writer, editor, and curator whose writing has appeared in Art Forum, Art in America, and the New York Review of Books. He has said Carol Dunham treats the canvas as a site for nearly anarchic experimentation without regard for linear progress, grids, flatness, tasteful coloration, or the idea of a contained art object. Dan is currently curator-at-large at the Minetti Schramm Museum at UC Davis, and he's currently working on a book about the cartoonist R. Crumb. From all of us at Two Palms, please join us in welcoming Dan Nadell and Carol Dunham. I'm Dan Nadell. I'm here at Two Palms for the podcast Between Two Palms, someplace I've occasionally been. I'm with Carol Dunham, artist and printmaker here at Two Palms. Tip, I thought we would dispense with um, the usual questions, chronology, how you do things, why you do them, and just go for some broader things. So what kind of man were you raised to be? (laughs) Well, Dan, I think I was raised to be some kind of centrist Republican small business owner in southern New England, which is kind of what my father was. But I knew at a pretty young age that that, I probably wouldn't be that. So I haven't thought about that question in a long time, but he was um, very bright, very personable. I think a person that probably in a parallel life would have made a wonderful college professor, but somehow thought he was supposed to be a businessman. But he found a lot of satisfaction in what he did. And he was a... Probably not atypical of his generation. He wasn't a very hands-on father when my brother and I were young, but he was very interested in us when we got old enough to argue with him or to be propagandized by him, like many parents. My father was a nice man, which I think is probably my overriding memory of him. Was that niceness something you aspired to as you got older when you were conscious of it a kindness no not really i just think i think there's a way we all learn from our environment kind of how to be to some extent and i don't think i thought a lot about it until he had passed away and i was much older i mean i'm i'm older now than he was when he died so i have 
uh, or almost the same age. And uh, I think about it differently now. But no, you don't, I don't think you have those kinds of thoughts as a kid. You might aspire to be as tough as your father or as successful as your father or surpass your father in certain, along certain metrics, but I don't think I'm going to be nicer than my father is, <laughs> unless your father's a complete shit, but mine wasn't. What were the other men like that were around? I mean, did they have an active social life? Did they have people over? Well, this is, you know, 50s, 60s, suburban Connecticut, skewed, very waspy. I was kind of uninterested in a lot of men when I was a boy. I didn't see a lot of what my father did and the way his life was constructed didn't seem particularly appealing I don't think I saw a lot of models in my immediate environment for ways to be an adult that appealed to me. I don't think I really had that experience consciously till I had my earliest experiences of the art scene down here in New York. I think that was the first time, other than the odd teacher. Oh, was, was New York your first sort of recognition of a way forward as an adult? Yeah, absolutely. The art world, as it, we unfortunately call it, what was a pretty small scene down in lower Manhattan in 1971 or two when my friends and I first encountered it. It was the first time I had been around older people that, that, whose whole approach to life interested me a lot. And what was your brother doing at that point, your younger brother? Well, he was younger than I am, so he was in school when I finished, but he, he was a lawyer. And did you track the divergences in your paths as your lives went on? We became very friendly after we had both grown up. Um, what age? What age has grown up? You know, kind of, I don't know, maybe he's 25 and I'm 29 or 30, something. But um, no, I think when we were growing up, like many brothers, we were very dependent on one another. And also there was a lot of rivalry. And it was clear from a young age that he had a much more for lack of a better word, straight idea about what he wanted to do with himself. But we, all, we, you know, we always stayed in touch. We always liked each other. And then when he, he moved to New York to go to law school and I was already living here, I think that's the first time we ever had serious conversations about me being me and him being him. Right. Which we did have. What were those like? Well, it was interesting because, in, you know, a lot of, we were always, I had a brother that was younger than I and, you know, did very different things, but we resembled each other quite a bit physically. We always were told that. And we were very fond of each other. So, I don't know, they were interesting conversations. As I never was able to have that kind of conversation with my father, really. I mean, he, he was very pro-me, but he certainly didn't understand what it would mean to be an artist. And he was always trying to move my interest over towards something like, like most artists' parents at some point. You know, you need a plan B. How are you going to earn a living? How can you monetize this, as we would now say? So, you know, we had all those usually nothing that a lot of other people wouldn't describe almost identically. So you grew up as a guy in the New York downtown art scene. I mean, we're at a funny time right now and it's relevant to the work you're making here at Two Palms. 
and elsewhere in, in her paintings, work about, or not necessarily only about, but related to notions of masculinity and manliness. And I just wondered sort of how that's changed for you over the last, let's say, <laughs> 40 years. <laughs> manliness as a construct, the, the manliness you grew up with, which is not so dissimilar to what I grew up with, I think. Um, well, but it's changed. Yes, I guess it, I mean, it certainly, I suppose those ideas are at the least embattled at the moment. I thought you were going to say embarrassed. Well, but. same diff, but yeah. I mean, I, I guess you could say both. My own maleness, my own biological maleness, my own cultural maleness, were, were aspects of the content of my work before I was even conscious that, of them as subject matter. So it took a long time for me to own what you're calling masculinity as, to own it consciously as a subject. And that was, that happened in a kind of parallel development with things that were happening in the culture, I'm sure. But that isn't how I tend to think about things. I don't map from the culture back to myself, at least not consciously, ways to think about what I'm going to do with my artwork. I tend to respond to things in my artwork and, and hope to let them move me forward. So why it would have occurred to a, an ambitious young painter in his early 30s, in the early 80s, to make a, what was nominally an abstract painting with a heart on, I don't really remember. But I know that it seemed, in terms of wanting to kind of move one's work to the edge of something or to try to hope that it went into new territory, I remember thinking, well, I haven't seen that before. And I seem to have the right to draw or paint that because of my own, what we would now call identity. Right. So I wasn't thinking at all about the kinds of issues of gender, class, race, uh, entitlement, privilege, Me Too movement, whatever. I wasn't thinking about any of that stuff. I was thinking about how to make a painting that really stood up and looked back at me on the wall. And that was the beginning of really a kind of hopeless disconnect in my work, which is I'm really an abstract artist and I'm part of that, but these weird signifiers of my own human biology just won't leave. But why was that a disconnect? Because you're an extremely analytical person. You are extremely in touch with your conscious thinking and your unconscious thinking, which maybe is the problem. But as an artist, you set up pretty clear parameters for your output from media to media, subject to subject to subject, you have a fairly ordered sensibility. And within and around that, a tremendous amount of thought goes on. So I've wondered about whether you found the disconnect convenient to allow. No psychologically? No judgment, man. No, no, I know, but um, I'm just Psychologically, yeah, convenient. psychologically convenient and even socially convenient in some ways. 
to say, well, it's about this. And did that disconnect seem that gap seems to be closing month by month as as I as I know you. I think that's um, a I perceptive wonder, observation, and I think it's true. The 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 gap is closing. Yes. I I agree. And how does that make you feel? Both relieved and uncomfortable. What's the discomfort? Well, I still have trouble getting my head around the fact that I'm making what would be referred to as figurative paintings because it goes so far into what I thought of as another direction when I was younger. And this disconnect you're asking me about, I don't think you're wrong about the psychological convenience, but it's also important to remember like there was no conversation about male genitals erupting into the middle of an otherwise non-representational painting. That conversation simply didn't exist, at least not in any conversation I was having. So I was looking for some way for something that felt really strong and true to erupt into what was, or to push its way into what was really a, a kind of conversation about manipulating codes, you know, like abstract art of the mid 20th century. I mean, it's a very complicated thing to talk about and it isn't even entirely clear we have the language to really talk about what abstraction is. But it isn't a big hard-on in the middle of a painting. So I, but I knew that without that, my work lacked some really integral part of me that I wanted to see. It wasn't a psych, it wasn't an intellectual position. It was, I want to look at this. So the disconnect really is, is within the language, I think. I mean, my own personal definition of abstraction, the one I work with, is images of things that you can't name. The only frame I, that I'm aware of having looked at this, this thing you're asking about comparing my father's outcomes to my outcomes, the only um, frame I'm aware of looking at that through is age. As I mentioned before, it's, it's almost a reflex with me, I, as I said before, we, about our relative ages when he died and where I am in my life. And I do think a lot about, God, when, you know, when, my, when I was this age, this is what my parents, when, when my parents were the age I am now, this is what they were like, but this is what I'm like, what's that about? But there are no conclusions to be drawn, it's just a- No, it's a funny thing. Mm. You just say, oh, I, have, I think I have a lot more sympathy as most, most people, unless they were raised in a really unhealthy environment, I think if they have families of their own, they do reach a point of much greater empathy with their own parents. I, I know I have. Did, did you seek out male role models in art or did, were you sort of... Not specifically. My first role model in art was, was a, my real strong role model was female. So no, I wouldn't say so. I had male teachers. But would that be I was Rockburn? Dorothea Rockburn's studio assistant. Right, right. And she had an enormous impact on my understanding of what being an artist was. I think because I, my mother worked, my mother and I were close. I was around very 
strong, active women growing up. I, I have, obviously, I grew up in this country at a certain time, so I've no doubt internalized and have had to unpack a lot of crap. But in certain ways, I think my assumptions about what men and women were for <laughs> were pretty different from a lot of men my age. Like I, I had no problem with the idea. I was eager to seek out older women who I thought would be useful mentors. And so no, I wouldn't say it was, it was me seeking out male role models at all, really. I think adult role models. Adult role models, yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. If you can even call being an artist an adult activity, which I'm not sure you can, but. Well. No, I'm being kind of, I mean, I'm being facetious, but I'm also being kind of serious. I, I mean, I've been lucky because I've been able to make this work over a fairly long period of time, which I know puts me in a very, percentage-wise, a very small group. It's different than having a straight job. Right. Although it has many of the trappings of a straight job Oddly, in certain ways. Yeah, which is pretty odd if you're a person of my generation or older because the idea that any sane person would think this was a good way to earn a living, they really should have their head examined. But that isn't the prevailing wisdom anymore. No, now it's a job. Hmm. So back to uh, consciousness and the way you sort of close the gap and, or live in the gap. One thing that I've noticed and that you've spoken about a lot is that you siphon your work off into sort of three distinct modes. There's painting, drawing, and printmaking. And what I've wondered about, because I've encountered you in various stages of a painting, you know, a couple of years after seeing the motif in a drawing, and sometimes a couple of years after seeing it in a print. And it seems like with painting, there's a certain amount of, I think you said, painting had a certain amount of physical and psychosocial demands uh, in some interview. And printing seems perhaps not to have those particular demands, of course, because it's a different medium. But I wondered about what printmaking sort of frees you to do because painting is so public and printmaking thus far is mostly fairly private. It's seen by fewer people and it's it seen does in very different ways and in a different way. And I think from what I can tell a lot of subject matter experimentation as well as all kinds of technical and procedural yeah. uh, experimentations happen first in printmaking. Well, because when I, when I was first introduced to printmaking, I did some, I was in, very interested in photography when I was young before I really knew I was an artist. But as, a, as an adult artist, when I was introduced to printmaking, my work was already being seen in exhibitions and I was at that point in my life. So... Yeah, I don't think it's an I don't think it's an ontological condition of painting that it's public, but it is the condition of painting in this 
social system that's achieving any sort of interest or notoriety to be public. So by the point at which I was introduced to printmaking, my paintings were public. My interest in printmaking, I think, was twofold. One was simply, I was starting to realize vividly what I had signed up for, and I was spending an enormous amount of time alone working. And printmaking was such a shift socially, you know, it had people that wanted to help you, collaborators, boosters, and it was fun. And I was learning stuff. So that was very attractive. And I was also aware that older artists who I admired a lot and a few contemporaries were getting very, either had been or were getting very serious about printmaking. And I was trying to figure out the value for myself. So I just dove in. And I, I don't think I understood at all that I was going to be doing this basically for the rest of my life. I think I just wanted to try to figure it out. And at this stage, um, I think in the last 15 years or so, or maybe just the last 10 years, it does seem like things will emerge in prints sometimes oh, yeah. long before they emerge in paintings and Absolutely. sometimes they won't emerge in paintings at all. That's Which makes sense true. because you're a very medium-specific artist who always have been. That's completely um, true. And I think... In the beginning, I saw the prints as a completely separate activity where images could be embodied. I mean, a lithograph is a completely different kind of object from a painting. And I realized quickly that I didn't want to just make lithographic versions of my paintings. So my early print work really looks quite different from the paintings I was making. I mean, I think you'd know it was the same artist. but Yeah. And... It went like that for a while until I realized how much working in a print studio was affecting my thoughts about what I wanted my paintings to look like. There was a shift, or not, how, not what they wanted to look like, what, not what I wanted them to look like, but how I would approach them. So at some point, there was a kind of shift or an evolution into using printmaking in a number of different ways. I got more comfortable with there being an actual correspondence relationship between some things in my prints and some things in my paintings. I would say sometimes at different points, my prints have been ahead of my paintings in terms of my thinking. Right now, I think. I think so too. Um, and at other times they've been behind and at other times they were just in a parallel track. But one of the things I'm really interested in about making prints is that as I said before, they're these different physical embodiments like substrates of the image. Mm -hmm. In the same way, you can't have consciousness without some sort of physical substrate. At least we don't think you can. We don't know how you can, I should say. Right. I don't think you can really have images without some kind of physical substrate. Mm -hmm. You can imagine things, but that's a private experience. There's nothing to share. I've imagined a lot more paintings than I've ever made, and no one will ever know what those look like. So printmaking to me is kind of analogous, like the images have a certain kind of life. You could almost imagine them as these homeless things that are drifting in some kind of platonic dimension, and they come into being 
apprehended or comprehended as physical objects. Mm -hmm. Printmaking provides an almost infinite variety of ways that images can be manifest in physical terms, which then goes to the idea of changing how you could make a painting, right. imagining all kinds of things. And recently I've noticed in the monotypes, which is, the, if I'm not mistaken, I, I could be wrong, that monotypes seem to, especially here, are starting to take up the sort of bulk of your activity. You know, I, I argued with David Lazary for a long time about doing monotypes because it was in certain ways, the premise of Two Palms in the beginning to be a studio to make monotypes. When I started collaborating with David, I was still very stuck in the idea that I want to do printmaking. And I didn't like the idea that monotype was this kind of slippery, hybrid, chimera kind of category. Years went by, David and I worked on a lot of edition things together and at a certain point, something changed in my thinking or, or his approach to me. I don't even remember now. But I thought, kind of thought, you know, I, should, I could think about this now. That was in about, I don't know, 2000 or 2001. So there was a period of maybe eight or nine years. We did a lot. I think it's almost all we did. We developed an entire technology, really, for doing them that was different from, I needed to find a way to be very specific about how to make them. I didn't want to just take on that thing you see in graduate students' studios, you know, smearing some oil paint on a sheet of plastic. And I'm nothing against that, but I, that wasn't me. Yeah. That was really the most intense period. And then I got kind of burned out on it. We went back to a bunch of different edition projects with some breaks in between these etchings that I recently made, you know, things like that. And then slowly I picked it back up again from a slightly different direction. So what we've been working on last year or so involves slightly related but slightly different technology. And also I've been exploring mono prints a bit. And you've also been using a spray gun. Yeah. A bit which is producing really interesting results and a different kind of uh, The monotypes vibe. involve a spray gun and, and, and an airbrush, yeah. yeah. And you're also, uh, to use your term, smearing the paint a bit as well with your fingers, which I've noticed. Uh, well, I did, adding a, I did finally, uh, to some extent, give up my resistance to oil mediums because I, we talk in in you know print nerd talk about the difference between monotype and mono print right and i wanted to work on mono prints by which we mean individual variations on a repeatable format so you can't do much with etching plates with water based material and i wanted to see what i could do with a kind of hand colored etching slash mono print type of project. So we've been doing things like that. I did make a group of monotypes that were full on schmeary oil paint. And I like the prints a lot, but I haven't pursued it because I find oil paint very physically, very unpleasant to be around. I don't enjoy it. But that schmeariness, uh, letting yourself make that kind of gesture. 
That's why I want. That that's why way. I force myself to do it is because I wanted to see if I found that attractive. And do you, despite the I do. consequences? Yeah, but I don't like working for four or five hours and having a splitting headache and feeling like I have the flu, which is what happens to me when I'm around oil pain for too long. Right. It's it's something I wanted to try. I have. I feel great about the things we've made, and I have no idea what the future holds. But the the main emphasis of my mono whatever work at the moment is still with these water-based mediums and in, in monotype. And, and a green guy has emerged, a green... A green man. man. Well, I, again, I have to figure this out and working here with my enablers seems to be a good way to do that. Figure what out? Whether or not there's room in my work for a green man. <laughs> but this is your work, so there's clearly room. Well, I guess room in my... In your painting. No, more like room in my mental universe or my way of the map I make in my own mind of what my work is. I'm just trying to figure out how I feel about it. And the only way I can is to make things and then look at them. You saw in my studio last year a group of little drawings I made where it was was the first time that I started thinking about a green man. And... As I told you at the time, it came, I, I don't have an experience that allows me to make paintings about a lot of sociological conditions that we're living through right now. And I'm a straight white guy in his late 60s. That's what I am. But I'm really interested in how some notion of difference that's not represented as obviously racial in the sense that we normally use it or tribal or clannish or whatever. I'm interested in uh, whether that's an idea you can explore without it immediately going into all the charged up stuff that we're dealing with culturally right now. I also have read science fiction my whole life, as you know, and there's something almost idiotically appealing to me about a green man just appearing in my work. I feel as though it's, oh, where did you come from? There must be a dimensional wormhole behind that tree. So there are a lot of levels to it for me. You know, it is, also I'm really interested in what it looks like. I mean, just pure and simple, um, going back to kind of Celtic ideas about men growing out of trees and those sort of fairy tale ideas about trees with faces and things like that. I'm really interested in the idea that a a representation of a human made of chlorophyll can fit in a painting with men whose skin is bright white or in in a monotype or anywhere. So those are the sorts of things I'm thinking about, all of which are fine and dandy, but don't mean Jack if I'm not interested in what I'm looking at. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. And where are you with figuring that out? Are you Uh, interested? TBD. TBD. How long does it usually take to figure out if you're interested in what you're looking at when you've sort of turned a corner, whether it's the wrestlers or the guy? When I made the first painting of that, that series of paintings I call Bathers, which started, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. And... That was basically the 
offspring of a long, long period of monotype development right. that we did here. I knew when I started the monotypes that I was really engaged, but I didn't know for a long time how to paint them. It wasn't that I didn't want to, I just didn't see it. But when I finally was able to make one painting and I saw it, I knew instantly. I mean, I knew, I knew, I just knew instantly that this was something I was going to stick with for a bit. So does the, is being able to realize it in a painting kind of the ultimate decider of whether or not it enters into the larger mental map? Not really. I mean, I have things, I mean, I would say yes and no. What's the no? I, well, I hate the idea of privileging painting. You know, <laughs> yeah, I, sure. I, I mean, but we do it as a culture and this certainly our, you know, the proverbial art market certainly does it. And that seems to reflect a general sense of some sort of hierarchy of importance. But so I don't want to support that notion. If I do place painting at some sort of pinnacle in some hierarchy in my own activities, I'm not sure it's for quite the same reasons that it's generally perceived. It takes a lot more out of me to make paintings uh, on every level. And it's something that I take really seriously when I'm ready to really do it. But there are a lot of things that have come up in my work over the years that I don't think ever really fully manifest in painting that would we're still, are still things that I'm very interested in or think about. How much do you enjoy painting? Do you enjoy it? Is now that even I, a relevant you, term? Uh, I'm not really sure it is. I, as many writers have said, and I among them, I enjoy having written. And I think I feel that way about painting. I'm not someone who's just having a blast pushing color around and because of the way my work process has evolved, I, you know, I don't work with people around me. I don't have helpers. I don't have an assistant in my studio. So it's a very solitary, focused kind of thing. And sometimes the paintings can take a long time. I've never, I, you know, I've never even seen you doodle. I've never seen you just sit and doodle. No, I don't so much. I tend to go off by myself to do stuff like that. Well, you know, you've been to my house. I have lots of little rooms with tables and things where I might go and draw. And I keep everything I draw. Everything? Yeah, everything. Is that coming from an idea? I mean, you've talked a lot about sort of your consciousness producing information that you can then pick up and use. And you've just mentioned before, you know, you have lots of unrealized ideas that are still interesting. You, you talk about research a lot when you're talking about your work. Yeah, it's a funny notion because it isn't going to the library, but it's something like that. Yeah. I mean, I would say my research can either take the form, it's taken forms as diverse as spending two months in Rome looking at painting to working on monotypes over here, you know, right. to rummaging around in the science fiction aisle of my local bookshop to talking to you about the history of comics to, right. I mean, I, my research takes a lot of forms. Right. But it's not every I artist. Mean, getting stone can be research. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, 
it's all all there. You mentioned the trees because you showed me on your phone the the trees with faces. I made uh, three paintings recently. I finished three paintings recently, which I'd been working on for a long time. That are in the imagery is is trees with faces. This is true, and it's pretty unambiguous. I mean, it yeah. isn't. It isn't. You know, gee, I think I see a face. It's that, right? And the green guy kind of. I hadn't thought of this until you said it, of course, but the, the green guy dovetails there. I think there's a way you could frame this as a psychic, whatever they represent, there's a battle going on in my psyche between this chlorophyll man and these fairy tale tree painting face things. Really? Yeah. Like, I'm not sure they can coexist. Why not? I don't know. I don't know. But why do you think? I don't think. You really don't think? <laughs> I'm gonna... I only feel about this. I don't have it. I don't know. I'm not being. I'm not being coy. I. All I know is that it's kind of like. Uh, it's almost like you've got two different drugs in your brain at the same time, and they're trying to do two conflicting things, which is an experience many people have had. Yeah. You know, there's a way that things just sometimes can't both be. Right. Now, they, they are, and I mean, I'm working on these prints, and there's this image of this green person in the prints, and I did make those paintings, but I'm talking about something a little more, I think I'm really talking more about the emotional resonance of all of it, that, yes, I've made these things, but going forward, I'm really not sure where the richest path of ex- exploration is. That's what I'm trying to understand. Because so there's... I can keep going with both. Yeah. And they can braid together and inform one another, but I just feel like, and this is odd because we're here in a purely audio medium. Yes, and we're talking about Um, very specific things. And uh, hopefully that's not incomprehensible, but. Well, it's not our problem. No. I wanted to ask you about the Hunt portfolio and the one corresponding painting, as far as I know, just the one. There's only the one. There's only the one. I saw the painting before the um, prints. And when I saw it with, with my wife, Elisa, um, you were very ambivalent about it. You weren't sure if it functioned or not, if it had done what you... I think I was v- being driven crazy by it. <laughs> I, uh, I had had it in my studio for, you know, the, just to, because we're in an audio medium. Yes. I got the idea a while ago because I'd been working on all this subject matter about men wrestling together, which is an interesting to me because it's kind of both adversarial and collaborative, mm-hmm. which is something I don't think people think a lot about. Like wrestling only works if everybody agrees on what we're doing. If you suddenly grab a glass ashtray and smash your wrestling buddy in the face, you're not wrestling anymore. That's right. So is that in some ways a way for you to think about the mutual agreement it takes just to communicate? Probably. I mean, maybe. I mean, you've been living with these wrestling paintings for a while now. Yes, I have. Probably. I think I started working on the drawings about five years ago, six years ago. And there have been, I think, three fairly large series of paintings. Right. Work here, 
Lots of drawings. You know, over the, let's say, in the last couple of years, have they come to mean something different to you than they did when they were somewhat inexplicable to you initially? After musing on this thing that I was making drawings and paintings of this both adversarial and collaborative activity, I started thinking about where does that go? Like, how does that build in, in, and I, I kind of use evolutionary models to think about where I want my work to go. Mm -hmm. So, or where my work wants me to go. So I thought about hunting because, you know, as a kid, I'd been, uh, uh, had a ravenous appetite for imagery about what we used to call cavemen and love, you know, natural history illustration and what, um, Zoe Lascaz, the art critic, has you know made a book called Paleo Art, which is a really interesting history of all this. But I looked at a lot of this stuff as a kid, and so image, you know, they always talk about hunting as being one of the early collaborative activities of human culture. That it was a hunting and hunting and then farming were the sort of signal developments of different ways that humans could cooperate and create larger social networks and all of this. So that's where hunting kind of popped into my head. And I got very excited because I also gave me a chance to draw us this big silly animal in the middle of, of, a, of the rectangle. So did a lot of group of drawings about it. And we worked on this group of etchings that we just finished this portfolio. Meanwhile, I had a painting and a big canvas in the corner of my studio. I was working on other things. And when I couldn't stand what I was working on, I would go over and sort of draw on this canvas. So by the time I actually finished it, it had been in my studio for two and a half years. And I, I had done a very elaborate drawing plan on the canvas of what the painting might be. By the time I finished the painting, I felt as though I had done some like big engineering project. And then when you guys were in my studio, I think I was really at the, the nadir of my exhaustion with the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And a week after you were there, I had the painting picked up and taken away because I couldn't stand having it in my studio anymore. <laughs> Where is and it now? It's at my it's gallery in here in New York. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. No, <laughs> I just said, throw this thing in the first dark alley you find. It's hanging at big W's Ex now. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly, Good. Good. yeah. I gave it to the McDonald's in Canaan, Connecticut. <laughs> no, it's... Um, it's in it's in New York and it's sitting in my gallery in a warehouse and I'm I'm going to put it make it be the centerpiece of an exhibition next spring in Norway. I want the painting to be seen. I, I'm completely sure that the painting is a painting. Oh, it's a painting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I don't want to be with it right now. Right. And the hunt etchings function very, very differently than the painting. I mean, for one thing... Well, tell me, because I, <laughs> I don't think I've ever had quite the same experience that I had with that painting of, of just feeling like, you're great, now leave. Tell me what's different, because I don't really know. Uh, the biggest difference to me is that that painting became about a void and about... In the sense of this huge shape in the middle? This huge shape in the middle. There are two chalk white men uh, attacking a seemingly benign 
animal. Morbidly obese. Well, or that's just (laughs) its normal shape. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And inserting a uh, nicely rendered pole into it. and, And there's a hole and a kind of ripple effect out of the hole, but no blood. And... Uh, birds are about having a look and the animal seems not altogether bothered by anything that's happening. It's a very still moment actually for something that is so, uh, ostensibly brutal. And, um, that's the painting. And what's interesting about the way the beast is painted is that it is not painted with a traditional volume so it appears as a sort of uh, brownish mass whereas the hunt portfolio is very very focused on rendering and less focused on the actual on a sort of centralized almost classical composition and more on action and I thought that was so interesting about the portfolio is that the, the way you employed medium was sort of uh, closest to you doing almost like narrative 19th century prints. Um, as well, I make, jokes to, about, I make jokes about ye old printmaking, but that's really what I am interested in with, yeah. these, with these etchings. And I mean, the way you depict the volume of that beast uh, makes it an entirely different uh, subject than in the painting. In the painting, it's passive and it's a thing you could read into. And in the prints, it's explicitly what it is. Hmm. Uh, that's that's my take on it. At yeah, least. that's interesting. It's different from how I see it, but that's interesting. How to do hear. you see it? Well, I don't. I don't think I see the difference in quite the same way. Yeah. Yeah. But as you say it, I understand what you're saying, and and I think there was a a very strong structural template that was imposing itself on that painting. The idea of an enormous shape occupying most of the space of a rectangle and elbowing everything out to the edges has been interesting to me for a long time. Yeah, and and a focus of yours throughout whatever subject matter you were working on. Yeah, I think so. One of the reasons that I got interested in the wrestlers as a subject was because all of the paintings I was making prior to that, that's that series of bather paintings, there was one human figure in the center of the field, which I needed to establish in order to really construct the world in which this was all happening. And it was starting to feel a bit limiting to me. And I liked the idea of two human bodies interacting because I thought it would create a much more complex and twisty kind of space, which I think is true. Right. And I was struck that you mentioned uh, this idea of collaboration coming through, that wrestling is a collaboration, hunting is a collaboration, farming, um, these early frameworks for being human, basically. Is that... As we understand being human. Right. And you, do you think of yourself as a humanist? I think of myself as a human. Just a human. <laughs> but I don't... Seems awfully limited to... Well, I don't know what a human... I don't know what a humanist... I don't know... I don't think I really understand what that means in the context of our present civilizational moment. I mean, 
What do you mean when you say, do I think of myself as a humanist? I mean, do you think that there are some universal values that we have to agree on or that we implicitly agree on in order to sort of foster the good of civilization? I think there ought to be, but I don't know if I think there are. That's probably the way a lot of Americans feel. Right. You know, the the relationship between the self and the group, all of that is something that American culture has a lot of trouble with. Right, and it's something that you are working on right now. In some way. We're not curing cancer here, as I always say, but... No, but that's sort of a cop-out. Well, yeah, but I think it's... uh, it's not an entirely useless piece of perspective to keep because well, as, as I'm I, doing my research, as we've said, yes. which is taking all these different forms and I'm able to explain it to myself and therefore to you in a certain way. But it's certainly not the only thing that's driving this stuff. Right. And I'm very aware that I have no kind of sociological agenda. I'm trying to just put these things in play and see where they go. Do you, at certain points when you finished a body of work or like with the wrestlers and the hunter and I mean, to sort of bring this back to the beginning about sort of being a man, do you feel like you've worked through some unconscious and now perhaps conscious questions about brotherhood, fatherhood, masculinity. That feels more like an issue of coming to a point of cutting the crap with yourself. It doesn't feel like having, having made discoveries so much in the, in the sense we usually think of it as I have a new theory of everything, you know, that isn't how it goes, but I want to see, I guess I want to make these pictures of things that are very male. And I, as I said before, I can't change who or what I am demographically. And I understand that my background and perspective doesn't really afford me a way in with any kind of real insight into the experience of a lot of other people, but I know what it feels like to be male. And I know what I, and I know I'm a white guy. And so, so I'm putting that in play with full awareness Uh, of how ridiculous it is. Well, I don't think it, see, I actually, I think it is fully not ridiculous. I think it's the opposite of ridiculous. Well, that's good. Thank you. It's extremely serious. Um, and I think it has a lot of gravitas, which is why when I ask sort of six years in, no, you haven't made a big discovery about who we are and what we are as a species or something, but have you made a discovery about yourself, about who you wow. are and about where you came from and about your experience as a man. I mean, the reason, for example, I recommended last night that you listen to that Purple Mountains record is, and I am like loathe in any interview to bring up records in air quotes. (laughs) It's a nightmare. Um, But 
it is an incredibly profound, incredibly profound meditation on being an artist of a certain age in a certain time as a male, straight male. And I wondered if you would sort of come to something about yourself and about your own biography from doing this work. I think I'm looking for a way to accept myself and not apologize for who and what I am. And to the extent that that feels like a nicer, a better way to live, a, a more realized way to live, maybe the images in my work embody that in some way. And I, I can go back to when I was a child and looking at all those paleo art illustrations in the museum at, in New Haven and all of that, that I think I was very drawn to the idea of just freedom to be male. These guys in my paintings look like uh, some sort of caricature of what used to be called Stone Age Man. But we are still that, you know, we're not any different. We think we are, but we're kind of not. And I'm trying to like that about myself before I punch out. And if other people get some use out of that, so much the better. Between Two Palms is recorded live at Two Palms in New York City. Follow us on Instagram at Two Palms NY and visit us online at twopalms.us. Be sure to like and subscribe to Between Two Palms to hear more from artists, curators, and collectors. On behalf of Dan and Carol and all of us at Two Palms, thanks for listening. Until next time.